Let's open our Bibles this morning to the Old Testament prophet Micah. We heard from the seventh chapter of Micah in our call to worship, and so we turn to the penultimate chapter, chapter 6. Micah chapter 6. This winter into the spring, we're looking at the, the earliest centuries of the church, that what it would mean to become a Christian, the radical disruption of life for your family, your relationships, your job, that it required, being a Christian, distinct beliefs, distinct behaviors. And so we've looked at sexual ethics and the sanctity of life. We'll continue in the coming weeks to look at the care for the poor and suffering, multi-ethnic diversity in the church, and radical forgiveness, things that culturally set Christians apart. In recent weeks, we've seen the truth that each person has inherent value and dignity because each of us is made in the image of God. And because we're made by God, he loves us and cares for us, even the weak, the vulnerable, the poor, and the needy. And so listen as I read Micah chapter 6, an indictment brought by God against his people for ignoring justice. Micah 6, verses 1 through 8. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Let's come to God in prayer. Father in heaven, I ask that you would let us listen to your word, that your spirit would be active in our midst, convicting us of sin where we are guilty, Lord, exposing our weakness, but Lord, let your spirit also be active in pointing us to our hope in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Lord, I pray that we would find our confidence in the gospel. We would find our, our motive for serving you in the work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Father, for those that listen this morning without a knowledge of Jesus as the Savior, as the Lord, Lord, I pray that even today, listening to your word, that, that you would draw people to yourself, that each man and woman would bow the knee before you, acknowledging Jesus to be the King, the Savior and Lord. So, Father, we come. Because of the grace that is ours through Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. How do you respond when you're accused? When somebody points out to you something you've 
done wrong? Would friends and family describe you as someone who is gentle and approachable? Or defensive and reactionary? In Micah chapter 6, we have a covenant lawsuit. God has entered into a covenant relationship with his people. He has made promises to them, and yet God himself brings an indictment against his people. He, he demands that they will stand up and answer for their crimes. Now, if we had been reading through the book of Micah, and, it, and we've jumped right into this chapter, we would have seen that this isn't a, a surprise by the time you get to chapter 6. That God has pointed out the sins of the people of Israel. In chapter 2, he said, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. In chapter 2, verse 2, he says that they covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. In chapter 3, verse 2, we read that God brings judgment on his people because they hate the good and love the evil. And then listen to the horrific language that the prophet uses. They tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones. Their willingness to pursue their, their own good is, is to, to take from others, to peel their lives away. So that in chapter 3, verse 9, the judgment will come against the rulers of Israel because they detest justice. They make crooked all that is straight. Or verse 11 of chapter 3, that the leaders give judgment for a bride. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. There is injustice in Israel. And so God is the one who brings judgment. And now the accusation isn't against merely a, a small group among the people. It's not merely a judgment against the leaders. In chapter 6, it is a judgment brought against the people, all of the people, for their sin against God. Look, look back at verse 1 as we see the accusation prophet begins with the, 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 the command to hear what the Lord says. And then in verse six, chapter 6, verse 1, God, God is actually speaking first to the prophet. Now in our English translations, because you could be speaking to one you or to all y'all, it's hard for us to figure out who we're, we're talking to. But it's, it's singular there in in, chapter, in verse 1 of chapter 6, when God says, arise, plead your case, he's actually picking Micah the prophet and saying, arise, you are my prosecutor to bring the case against the people. And, and God commands that the, the, the very mountains, all of creation will be witness to what God's people have done. It's a simple reminder that God is the one who made the mountains and the earth because it's strange. Why an inanimate object, mountains and hills, to be witnesses? Well, it's a reminder that God is the creator. Or perhaps a reminder to the people that there were times when God took them to the mountaintop, when God commanded that they stack stones of remembrance, that they were meant to remember what God has done. And so, so let these mountains themselves stand as reminders to you. And so arise, Micah, and plead your case. The mountains are called to, 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 to be witness to the indictment. And, and the, the language is, is then damning of the people. For the Lord, verse 2, has an indictment against his people. He will contend 
with Israel. In verse 3, oh my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. God is saying, you are people that are pursuing your, your own ends, your own means, your, your, own, your own desires. And you've actually brought the, the case against me, God is saying. You, you've pretended that this was my fault. You've looked at what's happening in the world around you and you've said, oh, I think God has abandoned us. I think God doesn't care anymore. What has God ever done for us anyway? So God says, oh, my people. I mean, there's, there's even a, a gentle invitation there. A reminder of the covenant relationship that they are meant to have with God. And then God reminds them of who he is and what he has done for them. Verse 4. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt, redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. God is the one who redeems his people, who freed them from slavery. A, a, a physical slavery, but even more than that, the, the slavery to their own sin by, by rescuing them by bringing them out, by giving them leaders to guide them. God is the one who redeems. And verse 5, then, God is the one who protects. He reminds them of specific instances when they were were in the the wilderness, when when Balak, the king of Moab, threatened them, when when Balaam, the prophet, spoke against them. He he makes them think about what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, and you'd have to pull out a map to remember this, because... Your, 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 your geography might not be, be clear enough, but Shittim is on the east of the Jordan. It's the last place the people camped before God miraculously let them cross into the promised land. This is the, the place where God said, I brought you out of Egypt, but not just to leave you in the wilderness, to bring you into the promised land. And Gilgal is there on the west of the Jordan. They have crossed from the east into the promised land near the, 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 the town of Jericho where God would give them victory. God is the one who redeems, who protects, who fulfills his promises. Now, perhaps we think, okay, Israel, I mean, I've read enough of the Old Testament to know that they're kind of foolish and dumb and they do lots of dumb stuff, and so it seems like they have this coming. But what's that have to do with me? Perhaps we think we'd slide without any correction from God. I mean, we're not as bad as Israel, right? Now, it's been called the crime of the century in Canna, Scotland. The biggest crime in 60 years. Six wool hats, some candy bars, and some coffee were stolen from the local store. The crime of the century. Because this island is 30 miles from the mainland, it's almost inaccessible. The, the little store remains unlocked all the time so that fishermen coming in and out can, can go in and use the Wi-Fi to connect with home. And so the biggest crime that they've had in decades were a few caps taken. The local manager, Julie McCabe, says it's, it's, it's normally left unlocked, but, but this is probably going to change everything. I mean, we'll probably have to lock up the store at night. Now, the, the, the reason that that story caught the attention of the international news of, a few years ago was because, wait, the crime of the century is stolen candy bars? Like, I don't think you have an idea of what injustice is really about. And yet, maybe that's our own experience. It, it, yes, it's a quaint story that, that might make you want to travel to the beautiful islands of Scotland. But maybe that's 
how we feel. I mean, we're so comfortable. We feel so isolated from injustice that that maybe the the biggest thing you you can come up with is something tiny. I mean, yes, we read about injustice elsewhere, but it doesn't really affect us. The crime of the century, if I were to describe it personally, just feels pretty small and insignificant. And so maybe in our comfort, our convenience, and I mean that for all of us, no, no matter where you live in our community, we are people that are in many ways protected from injustice. It's, it's away from us. It affects people over there, not me. And so when we read a, a passage in which God is demanding his people stand up and answer for their lack of compassion, for their injustice, for their selfishness, we think, okay, I mean, they kind of got it coming. Because we read an indictment and think, well, that doesn't have to do anything with me. And yet, even in our comfort and our convenience, we can still blame God. God, why would you let this happen to me? We can take a small inconvenience and, and, and blow it up into something big because we expect comfort. We don't want anyone to upset what we think we deserve. And yet our, our own unwillingness to consider the needs of the most vulnerable around us opens us up to this kind of indictment. Our, our willingness to, to overlook the pain of those around us. Now the people have heard the indictment from God and so they're, they're required to plea. Although here it seems that they don't even have opportunity to speak. God just keeps plowing through it. It seems that it's the prophet Micah who continues to speak. In verses 6 and 7, the, the people are given an answer through the voice of the prophets. With, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Verse 6 continues, shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? I mean, what's this going to take? Like, what do I have to do, God, to make this right? I mean, some offerings, will that be enough? I mean, what if I give you thousands or ten thousands of offerings? I mean, that's the kind of offerings that in the Bible we, we only read about in the time of, of King David or Solomon at the dedication of the temple. But is that, is that what it would take? I mean, can we just get this done with? Can you give me a clear answer on what you'd expect of me, God? The, the language gets even worse in verse 7. Not only does he speak of, of thousands of rams or ten thousand of rivers of oil, the question comes, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? I mean, what's it going to take? You know, a son? It's as if, in the almost sarcastic words of the prophet, the people are coming to God expecting that, you know, we've gone through the rituals. I've showed up week after week at the temple. I mean, I had to raise that calf to be a year old. That's that's a year's worth of food, and I got nothing out of it. I mean, I, I... I had to care for that thing and then I had to bring it to you? I mean, God, what if I could multiply that 10,000 times over? Israel is blind to God's grace, to God's love and favor. It's as if they think, well, God could be bought. God has entered into this relationship with me. All that's expected of me is to jump through these hoops, to go through these rituals, to show up and do what's expected. And then God should keep his mouth shut and let me get on with my life. 
but there's nothing that can buy God's grace. The sacrifices themselves were never meant to make God listen to his people or to respond to his people. The the sacrifices were only given after God had shown them his grace. After God had rescued them and redeemed them, that God gave them a, a plan and a pattern so that they could come before God with clean hands, with a pure heart, because they'd brought sacrifice. But just like the other prophets of the Old Testament will say, God was never expecting sacrifice or, or mere ritual obedience to be the response. God wanted the hearts of his people, their, their souls, their motives. Sacrifice was commanded by God in response to his grace, not to merit his grace. The indictment comes, the plea is foolishness. And yet then Micah gives us with clarity what God has expected. I mean, you've heard the phrase, even if you didn't know that it came from Micah chapter 6. Look at verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? He's told you. You don't have to guess at what God wants. This isn't a surprise that you were thinking, well, that's not fair. I was bringing all of these sacrifices and all along, that, that, wasn't, that wasn't the way to make myself right with you. That wasn't the way that I could earn my own salvation. I mean, God, come on, have you changed the rules? No, God has told you what is good. God has revealed himself to you. We can just think of, of a few places in the Bible where God makes clear his heart for justice, for doing what is right to the, to the weak and the vulnerable. We could turn to the book of the law given to the people, to the book of Deuteronomy. When the people were, were freed from slavery, God gave them commands. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, we read, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. What is this God like? Deuteronomy 10. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Or if you turn toward the end of the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 27, God brings this command, cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And all the people shall say, Amen. Or you can think about how God put this into the, into the, very, the very songbook of his people, that the, that the reminders of who God is and what he has done were, were put before them in song. In Psalm 68, we read about God's love. We're told to sing, sing to God, sing praises to his name. For he is the father of the fatherless and protector of the widow is God in his holy habitation. Or if we turn to Psalm 146, toward the end of the Psalter, we find that God is the one who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. You see, what Micah is saying is, He's told you. He's told you what's expected of you, what is good, what the Lord requires of you. He said it explicitly and repeatedly, and he's told you because this is who he is. The very character of God, the very actions of God, the one who 
who does, who does what is right. That's, that's what we're told back in verse five, that, 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 that you, were, you were rescued so that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Your rescue, your redemption was always meant to be for the good of other people. That the vulnerable, the weak, the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, the poor would have someone there to protect them, to care for them because that's who God is. The very character of God determines our response to injustice. And so then it's clear in verse six, what are we to do? What is required? To do justice, to love mercy, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. It's not merely a slogan for a t-shirt. It's not merely a a quick list of action items of like, oh good, I, I did that, I'm done. I can set that aside. No, it's a life devoted to the things that matter most to God. A life devoted to justice, to to bringing about wholeness and restoration, to doing what is right and good for everyone, not just for yourself. It's It's a life in which you love kindness. Other, other translations will say that, that you have a heart for mercy, that you care about and are compassionate toward those that are most in need, and that you walk humbly with God. See, what God wants is your very life, all that you are. What's expected of you is to give yourself to God. Pastor uh, James Boyce at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, he was, writing, he was preaching to his church decades ago. So speaking not merely to the issues of justice, which would be on the front page of, of our paper, but issues which were in front of his church decades ago. He says that that, that command to love kindness, he says, look at your own heart, church. When you hear about injustice, what's your natural response? Is it a, a brokenness for those that have been harmed? Or, is it, or are you someone who is quick to say, yes, but look at their irresponsible behavior? He, he was talking to his, his own church and saying, too many of us, when we hear news of injustice, we say, yeah, but they kind of had it coming, right? I mean, you can quote those statistics at me, but I but I have these statistics that show that's not really the problem. And, and he said, the, the, Pastor Boyce was saying, the issue isn't so much which statistics you're quoting, but the very motives of your heart, the very attitude that you have. When you hear about injustice, it's your first response to say, yes, but you only have part of the story. But you haven't read this article that I read. You haven't watched this, this post on social media. You, you don't really understand all of it. Or is your heart one where you're, you're brokenhearted because you see injustice? And you're someone who loves kindness. Pastor Boyce, he continued, he said, actually to apply that command to walk humbly means that rather than, than spew our own statistics into the argument, maybe we need to be quick to admit, I might be part of this problem. The things that I had assumed were just for everyone, maybe they really aren't. Maybe I have just assumed everyone had the same access to protections that I take for granted. Maybe we need to admit that we might be part of the problem. See, we are quick to jump into cultural conversations about injustice. 
but only to blame others for their failures. Whether the failures of those people who have gotten themselves into that mess or the failures of others who don't respond the way we think they should respond to this injustice, we're quick to to point out everything that everyone else has done wrong. And how do I know? Because I've heard your conversations. I've watched it online. We're quick to point out what other people have done wrong rather than than respond with with the heart that, that pursues justice. See, but another problem when we see injustice is that, that, yes, we're quick to talk about injustice, we're quick to post online, but then we don't do anything. We just let our words stand in for, for us. No, no, look at me. I'm somebody who really loves these issues. I mean, you, you can look at, at my feed and, and you can understand what matters most to me, but, but then we don't do anything. But what is Micah commanding? that you must do justice. You must love kindness. You must walk humbly with your God. Yes, you might feel overwhelmed when you look at the systems and structures and say, I don't don't know how to solve that giant problem. Well, Michael would say, then solve the problem that's right in front of you. I, I don't know how to fix the problem for this entire community. Well, then fix the problem for that neighbor. I don't, I don't know how to, how to, how to bring this, this whole class or this, 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 whole, this whole school out of, out of despair. Well, then tutor one student. God has told you what is good. What does the Lord require of you? It's to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly. See, we're motivated because of who God is and what he's done. And, and this passage, while it's a clear indictment, while God will scream at them in verse 3, answer me. God is the one who at the beginning of verse 3 says, oh, my people. He repeats it in verse 5, oh, my people. You belong to me. I've rescued you. I've saved you. Even even that hint in verse 7, that shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? Remember, these are the words of God spoken through the prophet. Now, they're brought sarcastically as if this is the response of God's people. What do you want, my firstborn? But that's what God offers. To to right that which has gone wrong. To bring justice where there was injustice. God himself said, I will give my firstborn for your transgression. My son, because of your sin. See, we're to love kindness, to delight in doing justice. Because of the love of God. We can love kindness because that is the very character of God. That's what he wants from us. One commentator, in summarizing this passage, he says, a person who does not practice mercy and justice has never participated in the covenant of grace. If you don't serve a neighbor and pursue their good, then it means you don't understand God's grace. Because when you see what God has done for you, lavishly welcomed you, responded to your poverty by sending his son, responded to your brokenness through the death of your savior, Jesus Christ. If, if, you, if you can't love another, it means you don't understand the love of God. It actually is simple enough that, that you could put it on a t-shirt. What does God want? He wants you to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. 
one of the things we've missed over the past year is the opportunity to gather in our broader community, to hear the small stories of care and compassion. If you'd been watching the Langsburg High School Marching Band in Michigan a few years ago, you might not have been able to pick out Autumn Michaels and Rachel Steffens among the musicians. The girls blend in with the the moving formation at halftime on the football field, a Friday night tradition. Freshman Autumn plays the clarinet, but she worried that marching band wouldn't be possible for her. Surgery for a brain tumor at age four required the removal of her optic nerves. So Autumn is blind. Teachers and administrators have been working for a way to figure out how they could, could put her on the field. They'd, they'd contacted other schools, even colleges, that had, that had had a blind student in a marching band. But finding aides and volunteers for every rehearsal became overwhelming, something the, the administration wasn't sure they'd be able to handle. Now, senior Rachel, she had helped Autumn a little bit during band camp before the school year started. The girls laughed together. They, they quickly became close. And as they closed in on the start of the season, Rachel realized there still wasn't an aide to help Autumn. In, in practices as they'd done it, she would put her hands on, on Autumn's shoulders or, or guide her by the, the elbows, but it required trust on both their parts. I mean, these are, this is the intricacy of, of, of marching while playing music. And they'd developed a careful communication and and trust on the field. Now, the director hadn't wanted to ask any of the students to do this regularly. He assured Rachel they'll find someone else to help Autumn. But Rachel didn't want them to keep searching for someone else. She wanted to be the one to help. It would mean setting down her own instrument during her senior season but it meant walking beside a friend, serving her interests. They'd joke with each other as they'd head home after each practice. See you on the field, Autumn, Rachel would say. Hear you on the field, Rachel, Autumn would reply. Rachel deflects any praise that's been, been passed along to her. It's just what you do for a friend, she'd say. It's a response motivated by love. Do justice, love kindness, and march humbly. Small acts of love. And yet we know that this command is huge. To do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly, it could change everything about who you are. Because God might be asking you to do something huge, to serve your neighbors. Because God has proven his love. He loves justice. He loves kindness. He loves your neighbor. And he loves you. He has told you, oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Let's pray together this morning. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the power of your word. 
the reminders of your grace, the depth of your love. Father in heaven, I pray that, that we would see the, the love which you have shown to us in Jesus, our Savior. Lord, for those who have heard your word and felt conviction of sin, I pray that they would, would be able to come to you to find forgiveness. For those who are followers of you, Christians, Lord, I pray that, that we would all be motivated by the gospel. Lord, that you would expose in us where we have sinned, where we are quick to justify ourselves, to overlook injustice around us. Lord, give us hearts that reflect your purposes and your love. Father in heaven, we come praying in the name of Jesus. Amen.